thanks so much, Jenny, for that very uh, kind and long um, intro. Um, it's not Professor Bhattacharya, it's just Tithi, because we are all comrades. So, um, but thank you for um, inviting me to this uh, marvelous meeting. And, and um, I, I hope to learn from uh, you guys, actually, about um, the current situation in Scotland and what the state of the feminist movement is and what kind of interventions are going on. So I'm really looking forward to learning from you. Um, so I'm going to keep my comments fairly brief um, and just talk about a few um, impressions that, uh, you know, as a Marxist feminist, you sort of have um, during an unprecedented crisis like this one. Um, so first, the um, good news, I think, is uh, speaking from the US, um, before I embark on any analysis, I want comrades in Scotland to know that we've had the highest number of wildcat strikes uh, in, in the US in the last uh, month and a half, okay? So it's just a fantastic development. Um, you know, we can't say because the state of the US left is like, global left in general quite weak, whether these or how these wildcat strikes will be translated into more sustained anti-systemic movements, that is yet, you know, up in the air um, and something that we should work towards. But it is a fantastic sign that in, an, in the case of this capitalist collapse, um, we are seeing workers fight back to this um, extent in, in the sort of heart of empire that is the US. So keeping that in mind, I'm going to talk about two kinds of uh, responses um, that we have seen in this crisis. Um, when I think back on this crisis in the years to come, I think two images will uh, stay with me. One is of ordinary Italians singing to one another across balconies in solidarity with neighbors in isolation and caregivers on the front lines. The other image is slightly different, is that of the Indian police hosing down migrant workers and their children with bleach for daring to walk cross country once their workplaces closed during lockdown and no public transport was available for them to go get home. And on a further development of that story last week, 16 of these migrant workers, including um, children, um, were um, forced to sleep in the open as they were trying to come home and uh, uh, a train um, killed them. So 16 uh, people lost their lives because they were sleeping on train tracks. So these images, that of, you know, um, the, the singing across balconies and um, the uh, migrant workers' um, condition under the pandemic, uh, embody respectively two things. One is the ordinary people's response to the coronavirus pandemic, and the second is capitalism's own response. One is that of solidarity and care to sustain life. The other is carceral discipline in the interest of profit. Examples of such diametrically opposite responses actually dot the landscape of the current crisis. Palestinian farmers were seen leaving fresh produce by roadsides for people who could not afford to buy food, while Viktor Orban of Hungary has used the crisis to rule by decree. 
Workers at General Electric in the US are forcing the company to produce ventilators, while medical staffing companies are trying to maintain their profits in the US by cutting salaries and benefits of employees who are treating coronavirus um, patients. And the latest in this is um, a, a news report that uh, I just read this morning, which is in the middle of this crisis, the New York governor Cuomo uh, forced by the uh, nursing home owners uh, in the U.S., the, their, their lobby, basically passed a bill which would make it impossible for families to sue these nursing homes um, for malpractice or um, uh, maltreatment of their loved ones, right? So the the, this bill was, uh, this law was smuggled into the budget in March. It was in page 347 of the budget uh, because the industry knew that the uh, virus was going to peak. So they wanted to make sure that they were protected, as it were. And so what happened was this passed in March, and of course by May. Uh, nursing homes in the U.S. that that um, you know house or or take care of the most vulnerable parts of the population, nursing homes in the U.S. were basically the hotspots for pandemic-related deaths. And now um, the 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 families of these um, dying people and uh, have found it impossible because of this new law to actually bring any action against the uh, against the. Uh, nursing home owners. So the pandemic is really tragically exposing that while what is needed is a concentration on saving and sustaining life, capitalism is concerned only with saving the economy or profits. And this we know in the case of the UK and the US, both of these governments are basically leading the efforts, global efforts to say, we need to open up uh, irrespective of um, any kind of um, warnings or any kind of um, advice from the uh, scientific community. And, you know, um, and now, you know, it first started with a Texan politician who fully representing his class wanted Americans to sacrifice their grandparents uh, to save the economy. He actually was the first to come by and say it, but now it has been become the sort of norm that we are, we should try to die for the economy. And of course, all of this is being said by politicians who will not have to go to work um, will not have to work in uh, Amazon warehouses where it is impossible to maintain six feet um, uh, social distance between workers and um, and politicians who have access to uh, testing um, on, a, on a regular basis and the White House staff uh, are being tested daily okay um, so it is wonderful that they get to say how the rest of us um, should go in, in and what kind of conditions the rest of us should go into work and uh, expose ourselves and our families to the virus. So this relationship between profit making and life making under capitalism is really the focus of social reproduction theory or SRT, something that I've been writing about for the past decade or so. The main arguments of SRT are as follows. While capitalism 
as a system only cares about profit, as we well know, because profit is capital's lifeblood and motor, the system as a whole has a relationship of what I call reluctant dependence on processes and institutions of life making. The system is dependent on workers to produce commodities, which are then sold to make profits. So the system can only survive if workers' lives are reproduced continuously and reliably while being replaced generationally. Food, housing, public transport, public schools and hospitals are all ingredients of life-making that socially reproduce workers and their families. The level of access to these institutions often determines the fate of the class as a whole, and women still perform the bulk of life-making work globally. But capital is also, so while it's dependent, it is also reluctant to spend any portion of its profits on processes that sustain and maintain life. This is why all care work is devalued or underpaid and sometimes completely unpaid under capitalism, while institutions of life making, such as schools and hospitals, are constantly being either privatized or are underfunded. So, but this situation is sort of capitalism in normal times, but the coronavirus is, is a unique situation, which is actually a crisis of public health. So in a much more intense manner, a capital is experiencing this relationship between life-making and profit-making under pandemic conditions. So unless it actually does something for workers, they will die under this pandemic. So that's what a public health crisis is. And yet it cannot you know, obviously say, hey, from tomorrow, we're gonna have fit-free healthcare in America. So the pandemic is forcing capitalism to temporarily prioritize life making temporarily and to a certain extent so those are the caveats we have to remember new hospitals are being created to care for the sick i mean one of the most awful things um, why the caveats are necessary to to talk about these temporary life-sustaining efforts is the son of um the tele-evangelists, I'm glad you guys don't have this phenomenon in the UK, the tele-evangelists, but uh, the US has this famous tele-evangelist, Billy Graham, uh, you know, known homophobe, um, a absolutely um, scary species of uh, humanity. Now his son actually opened a field hospital in Central Park in New York when the pandemic was surging in New York in order to help. Now you would think, okay, you know, finally he's doing something of the Lord's work. Well, maybe uh, yes and no, because he would refuse treatment because he was a religious organization, he could do that. He, would he had refused treatment to gay people and trans people. So that's kind of just to keep in mind that even when capitalism um, um, actually invests in life-making um, activities, uh, even in a crisis, there are some major uh, caveats to those uh, processes. But we have to, again, look at it systematically. So yes, uh, governments are forced to open new hospitals. Normally, draconian immigration laws are being relaxed. 
Uh, and this part was really wonderful to see, which is posh hotel rooms are being commandeered to house the homeless. I mean, and you know, I, I think that there should be a movement that the homeless will never leave. I mean, why, why are these posh hotel rooms um, there? I mean, it should be housing the homeless um, constantly, uh, permanently. But we are also seeing a simultaneous escalation um, in the carceral functions of capitalist state. So obviously, um, you know, um, the, the thing that is most uh, scary is that police and border agents are now being deployed by the capitalist state as the guarantees of public health. In a way, it, this is the state sort of default thing. So if there is a public health crisis, of course, it's going to get the agents of the state to do that. But in this case, it, um, it has to be, it, it has been the police. And this makes you would think, okay, this is great. You know, the police are actually going to do something useful, like um, enforce quarantine and you know lock up these absolutely insane uh, white armed militia who are going around with guns in the U.S. forcing shops and stuff to open up. So you think the police finally, without shooting black people, would be doing this useful work? Except no. Um, in all of the um, in all of the statistics that has been published so far, it is very very clear that um, even in white majority areas, the police have been targeting and giving uh, tickets and and um, fines and so on to people of color uh, in social uh, distance enforcement. Um, measures. So um, this, is, this is part of the problem of using cops with a history of institutional um, racism and violence to be welfare agents to uh, uphold public health, right? But there are other things as well, which is, you know, um, Israel has used this crisis to enhance surveillance. Bolivia has postponed elections, while India, um, and it's a country I know well from where I come, has seen an unprecedented escalation of police brutality. So um, one man was shot dead, uh, stepping out of his house to buy biscuits. And of course, the man was a Muslim. So while we're in the throes of this crisis, we must demand that the workers who are performing these essential services, and the vast majority of them women, our nurses, our food workers, doctors, cleaners, um, refuse collectors, be given the dignity and wages they deserve. Stockbrokers or investment bankers have not made any government's essential services list. As feminists, we should demand that now and forever, the elite's income reflect their utility. Why should they be paid if they're so useless? But once the pandemic crisis passes, we cannot go back to business as usual. And so here, I think I wanna say a little more about um, the, the whole question of the essential services. Um, as essential workers uh, category. I think it's very important to actually, um, uh, for the first time, there is a public acknowledgement that nurses and garbage collectors 
and um, you know, hospital workers of all shades, um, teachers are actually essential to the working of society. So in that sense, it's, it's a really wonderful thing. But on the other hand, we should be a little wary, I think, um, about um, capital's designation of essential because it does have, capitalism has a tendency to use this against other workers. So um, my comrade and um, dear friend, Sarah Ferris, just wrote a lovely piece um, for the journal that I am on the editorial board now for, which is Spectre. Um, Sarah and um, Mark Bergfeld just wrote a piece about the, pro, you know, this kind of questioning this category of essential workers and basically their argument is that yes i mean we should absolutely celebrate essential workers but we cannot let capitalism then turn around and tell us that the rest of the working class is non-essential uh, and use that as a logic to fire people and and so on uh, so I think, you know, like, for instance, um, as, as a university professor, I always worry, even though I'm not a poet, I'm always worried that when it comes to essential departments, they'll fire all our poets. And because, you know, who needs poetry in a capitalist world? Um, but in a world where you and I want to live, we do want poets. We want more poets than we want um, real estate agents. So... Um, so this is something that, um, you know, we must be, um, we must think about uh, when we are uh, sort of talking about essential uh, workers. So this is where I think we come back to the, the dangers of going back to business as usual. Once the pandemic passes, and to be honest, uh, now it's looking likely that the idiocy and the, and the brutality, uh, really, irresponsible brutality of capitalist states is going to ensure that the pandemic does not pass anytime soon, that, you know, second waves are likely to happen if governments go on with this murderous policy of, of opening up the economy, uh, irrespective of the lives and livelihoods of its workers. So the danger of going back to business as usual is if the pandemic passes and we go back to the world um, before the coronavirus crisis, then we've learned nothing from this crisis. And one of the things that I think the crisis should prepare us for is the coming climate holocaust. Um, if we go back to business as usual and continue to burn fossil fuels, continue to have these mass-produced um, meat industries where, um, you know, animal um, um, pathogens continue to spread and, and debilitate society with these, um, um, with these pandemics. If we continue with the uh, devastation of our um, land and our um, natural resources, then I think the coming climate crisis will be much worse than this pandemic crisis. And it will be one from which there will be no return. So we can think about an end to the coronavirus crisis with a vaccine, hopefully in the next um, year or two, 
Um, and we can think of various ways that we understand the virus and try to tame it. But if and when the climate crisis cr comes, there is no way out of it. So if there is something to be learned from this pandemic is that we cannot go back to capitalism business as usual. This should be a moment where we as a left decide that we cannot let capitalism forget what we've been through through this pandemic. We must demand that instead of capitalism putting our lives in crisis, we put its dynamic of profit-making over life-making into crisis. That life and life-making become the basis of social organization to the flourishing of the many rather than the prosperity of the few. Thanks. Okay, everybody, I think that is us all back from the breakout groups. So thank you very much for the participation there. Um, just a reminder that we're going to try and conclude by 7.30pm because um, I know people have other commitments and responsibilities, so I will try to keep us to time. Um, we are going to get started on our question and answer session now. So if I could just ask that everybody who was nominated in their group to ask a question, can you virtually raise your hand? Um, if you don't know how to do that, click on the participants button at the bottom of your screen. Under the list of names, there will be a button that says raise hand. Press that button. Um, once you've done that, I'll add you to the stack and I'll lower your hand. So once I've lowered your hand, you'll know that I have um, seen you. Um, and just to remind everybody that your mic is muted until you unmute yourself to speak. So, can I have Kerry first of all? Hi. Um, sorry, I wasn't expecting to go first and I've got a really dry throat. Um, hiya. Okay, so just to summarise, um, I, I really enjoyed our discussion. We, we kind of started off thinking about things um, that had been said and we were feeling worried about the, the ability or potential of capitalism just to sort of um, deepen and for after, after the... Uh, after we, we find a vaccine and, and so on, that um, the situation would get worse. So um, we were talking about different examples of that. Um, and then we kind of veered on to, well, we're in a situation where, um, at least in the UK, we've had 10 years of austerity. People are already vulnerable. The pandemic's shone a magnifying glass on that and really emphasised all of these different things um, that we can talk about as being caused by capitalism um, that, that make people more vulnerable and highlight the injustices that exist. So the question was kind of, um, well, now that we've accepted that we, we need to literally fight for our lives, even if we are worried that things will go back to business as usual, what is the idea that we rally around? So um, at the moment, we can see that people have, um, a set, there's a sentiment of solidarity, even if it is in the form of clapping for NHS workers or whatever that is. So the sentiment's there. How do we harness that? How do we use that? Um, is the idea something as simple as anti-capitalism for the movement? And then we discussed, well, does that adequately take into account the position of women and previous movements that have gone like that? Um, and then we were just talking about different ideas about people refusing to return to work and how that's difficult um, because welfare isn't good and so on. So then there was a concept around, well, people are willing to stay at home to protect other people. How can we get people out onto the streets to, as a way of protecting other people, how can we harness that? And I know that that question is um, that's on everybody's mind, but I think it's um, how do we translate? Oh, 
um, someone else in the group articulated it better, but basically how do we translate this sentiment into practical action and how do we organise in preparation for the first protest, the first time that we can actually come together on the streets and truly fight for the people who are um, being, um, I'm trying not to use a bad word, just um, not being treated well by this situation, if that makes sense. Did you, I think if it's okay, I'll take two questions at a time. Does that work for you? I'm going to assume that's that's working. Um, in which case, I've got Sinead up next. Hi. Um, our question was maybe quite similar to Kerry's, but uh, maybe a bit less articulate. Um, but yeah, it was basically on how we kind of formalise um, the support and solidarity um, that we've seen um, since this, um, in particular the um, kind of recognition of women's roles um, within that, and in particular also how the kind of recognition that people are vulnerable. And so how can we kind of expand on that and continue that and kind of continue to support um, vulnerable people? Um, yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> We have Titi here. Yeah, should I respond? Yeah. Okay, great. So um, thank you so much for those really thoughtful questions. And um, I'll, I'll start with Katie. Um, so one of the things that um, you say is is actually, um, I've been thinking about this a lot, which is, you, you had a lovely word for it, you said end deepen. You said if, you know, a cap capitalism can end deepen the, um, existing um, inequalities and, and oppressions. So again, to use um, the example from my country, India, which is, you know, the, the form that social oppression, one of the forms that social oppression takes in India is the caste system, yeah? And it's a, it's a hierarchization of society, which is practiced through touching. Okay, so the idea is that you should not be um, uh, touched by members of the lower castes and they should not be um, in contact with you, even walk in your shadow and so on. So just bodily touching is a very important um, disciplinary mechanism to maintain caste hierarchy. So one of the things that I've been thinking is if it is so much about bodily contact, how does that work in a pandemic which is all about bodily contact and so what has been happening in india is actually existing caste hierarchies um, are being escalated and and enforced uh, through it i mean th th that's not to say that race hierarchies are not being escalated of course they are but this is just to give you a stark example of your um, fear of um, capitalism and sort of uh, within the crisis uh, will try or uh, the dynamics of capitalism ensures that uh, certain um, forms of exploitation and, and oppression are actually heightened through through the crisis uh, so your next question was about Casey. So what do we do about it, right? So if this is the case, what do we do about it? 
So a, a simple answer um, or a simplistic answer about how do we protest from home was, you know, I, I don't know, obviously, you know, the working class is the most innovative class in, in history, the capitalist working class. So, I mean, in times of crisis, people find various ways to protest, right? So if you're not allowed to go eat at certain restaurants, a form of protest happens, which is sitting down at lunch counters, okay, which was part of the civil rights protest in, in the US. So new forms of protest emerge in particular crisis moments to deal with that particular situation. So I am very hopeful that if the isolation and lockdowns continue, new forms of how to protest will emerge in, in the coming um, days. Uh, that's a, if you think that's a bit of a cop-out, it actually, uh, we are seeing um, new forms of uh, protest, at least um, in the US, uh, two things have been happening. One is wildcat strikes, okay? So workers are going on strike, refusing to work in these unsafe conditions and just walking out of their jobs. So that's that's sort of more regular form of protest. The other is that people are doing car cavalcades. So, you know, uh, America is a very, very car uh, dependent uh, society. So all of us have cars because there's not much public transport. So people are just getting in their cars, putting signs all around the uh, car and just traveling in lines of cars to protest, you know, uh, immigration uh, laws or cuts to healthcare and, and so on. So this has been happening. One of the most poignant protests that have gained a lot of, and of course there's been protests where people actually have picket lines and stuff with six feet apart distance maintained. Okay, so that's that's been going on. A poignant one is has been nurses um, standing in front of the White House with shoes, um, uh, which is the shoes of their fallen comrades who have died in the crisis because the government did not ensure they had PPE or personal protective equipment. And the nurses have been standing in front of the White House reading out the names of their fallen comrades, which have been a very, very powerful evocative image. So all of these kind of protests, I think, are happening. Um, and, and I think more forms will emerge. I'm, I'm pretty confident that more forms will emerge as we um, as we uh, move through this pandemic, I just want to um, say that for me, what is really really hopeful is, of course, and this kind of segues into Sinead's question: um, How do we formalize support and solidarity? For me, what has been really hopeful in throughout this crisis and these sort of you know, um, seedlings, I would say, they're not yet flourishing plants, but seedlings of protest is the fact that for the first time we have a certain realization in society, partly because of this whole essential worker category and so on, we have a realization or consciousness as a society that workers actually run the society. So those kind of ideas that, you know, um, well, in the US, it, it is portrayed as 
businessmen create jobs, right? So the jobs are created by bosses. It's not the work of workers. But through this crisis, because it has been such a public health crisis and it has been about essential services that we need, it, there is a generalized now understanding that workers work sustain society rather than bosses work, right? So this consciousness, I think, is very, very vital. And it is, I think, the job of the left right now as we, um, you know, stay home or whatever, is to push that consciousness in any way possible. So one is, you know, that I've been saying is join a union while, you know, you're home. Join a union and make sure you bring up these sort of issues of race and gender, not just about wages within the union and have these kind of discussion groups, et cetera within union. And the other is in the United States, um, and, and, and I'm sure it's true in Scotland, I don't know so much about um, England, but in the United States, there's a broad left formation now called the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. So, you know, uh, join the DSA. The left there is not, you know, maybe your kind of revolutionary left. There are all sorts of shades of leftists in, in the DSA, not all of them Marxists, uh, perhaps not all of them feminists, but joining a broad church left movement is a fantastic way to try to shape the left in the way that we want, right? Because what we want to happen is move the consciousness from a realization that what is happening now is wrong to a realization that things cannot actually change unless we get rid of the system. Thank you so much. Um, now I'm going to call on Vonnie. Uh, thank you very much. Um, our question actually picks up on a, a couple of points that have been made there. Uh, we were going to ask something about uh, the best ways to organise right now, but the second part of our question really picks up on what you were saying there about needing to, to build a broad church within the, the left movement uh, for, for change. What we were discussing was the way that the pandemic is throwing the class divide into sharp relief here. Um, one example yesterday were, was uh, there was a discussion uh, on Twitter about um, whether or not it was ethical for working class women to, to come and clean middle class women's houses right now because it makes them feel normal and useful uh, were the words that were used. What we're seeing here is, is exploitation out in the open here, that, that there are, are some people are willing to put working class women in danger for their own comfort. How do we build alliances uh, across these class lines right now when so many of us are feeling um, really bitter about what we're seeing? Great, um, and then I'll take Colin as well. Thanks. Um, we were talking about um, the divisions that you mentioned between different workers um, and how the right and the bosses try to divide us. And thinking about some of the scapegoating um, that goes on and has gone on a bit um, around 
um, COVID, particularly um, anti-Chinese scapegoating, racist scapegoating, um, and also the kind of homophobia and transphobia that the right comes out with, um, that often those are things which don't actually seem to deliver anything for workers, really. It's just, it's just empty rhetoric. Um, and I raise the example, um, which people found interesting, of what the right-wing government is doing in Poland, which is that they have actually really increased levels of benefit. Uh, they have given people payments, um, depending on how many kids they've got from the second child, um, if you're on a reasonable wage, but if you're on a low wage from the first child. Um, and this really fits with their homophobia, their transphobia, their nationalism, and this, and this rhetoric around normal Polish families. So it seemed to us that you have a potential in the situation for solidarity. Um, uh, and, you know, as you were talking about with the health workers, in, in, in England, the teachers unions have played a great and important role in stopping the return to work. But, we've, but, but there's also this potential for um, nationalism and for retreating behind borders um, and exaggerating racism and racist divisions among workers. So we wondered if you'd say something about that. Thank you, Colin. Um, just before I bring back in TT, I've got three people left in the stack, Julia, Daniela and Hasret. Um, while uh, if any, anyone is missing from that who thinks that they have a question, if you could just raise your hand virtually um, and I'll bring TT back in for the moment. Should I speak? Yeah, on you go. Okay, great. Okay, so, um, so Bonnie, um, just to um, emphasize or kind of heighten what you've been saying uh you know people in various countries of south asia um india pakistan bangladesh middle class women have been going on um facebook uh one is of course like you know um we want to continue with the normal whatever of maids coming in to clean our houses. But the other is, which I find even more obnoxious, is people saying how wonderful they are because they're doing all this work by themselves right now. Okay, that part, I just feel like, okay, where's the guillotine? So that's kind of, uh, you know, where, where we are at. So actually, um, I'm just translating this um, excellent interview um, that folks have done with um, domestic workers in Calcutta and Dhaka in, in Bangladesh, and the kind of things that they've been going through, which is completely dependent on the whims of their, um, you know, uh, employers, in, in the sense that some of them uh, some of the good employers have said to these uh, to these women, you can stay home and I'll still pay your salary. Some bad employers have said, I'm sorry, if you're not coming to work, I'm not going to pay you. So this, you know, in a way, this is not the time to congratulate the good employers. The time is to actually say that this kind of work, which is mostly unorganized, you know, domestic work is mostly unorganized in most countries, the very principle of that is wrong. Okay, domestic work, if people are coming to clean your house, that should be exactly the same as people coming to clean your streets, right? So it should have 
very high pay. It should be very expensive uh, because it's absolutely thankless labor. So it should be expensive and people should have exactly the same kind of government benefits and whatever that you know any public employee were to have. So you have to pay a hefty price to have people come and clean your house if that's you know the kind of way you want to live. Um, but you know, so having said all this, I, I just want to maybe I misunderstood, but um, you mentioned how do we build uh, alliances across class lines? I don't think we build alliances across class lines at all. At least that's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is establishing a, um, a, a, a horizon for working class politics and not refusing membership to that broad formation with individuals from the middle class as long as they uh, agree with the horizon of working class politics. But across class lines is something I am absolutely not interested in, in, in doing, right? But individual middle class per people should absolutely be allowed to join our movement because no one should be you know, and are penalized for the accident of their birth. But the point is not that they are born in the wrong class. The point is, are you upholding the politics and interests of your class? And as long as you're not, please come and join my movement, right? So that's how I would, you know, go around answering your question. Um, Colin um, raised a very um, essential point, which was about racism. And I wanted to say that, um, you know, again, I can only uh, give you examples of um, the, the reality I'm living in. So right now, um, one of the things that's happening is, you know, if you take the, uh, the, the, the liberal paper, the New York Times, it runs really good articles uh, um, investigative journalistic articles about what is happening under the Trump regime. Okay, and it's just really, really good. You know, good pieces on domestic work, domestic violence of women being stuck in whatever. Good queer, uh, for, you know, um, articles on on the, uh, the 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 effects of the pandemic on queer people, people of color. But alongside all of that it will run an anti-China piece almost every day, okay? Almost every day, there is uh, something about uh, how terrible China is. So for instance, today, your uh, anti for my anti-China um, menu was, oh, they are still eating bats in China, okay? So here's the market, it's selling bats and eating bats. And again, you know, yes, if these, uh, you know, the idea is that these kind of um, markets in, in wild animals should probably cease, but that is not the point. The point is actually the, uh, the market industry, the, the factory farming that all capitalist countries um, uh, engage in is what's causing these kind of zoonotic diseases to spread, right? So it's capitalist agriculture and farming that is responsible, not some, you know, one-off uh, or country like China, which sells bats, okay? So that's, um, so, so all this is to say the following, that 
in most in the United States, both the Democrats and the Republicans um, are pursuing this policy of U.S. hegemony. Okay, so the U.S. has to regain its hegemony in the uh, in the world in this in these times, and of course, the the biggest challenger to that hegemony is China. So both Biden and Trump are competing with each other to say anti-Chinese stuff. Meanwhile, just like the UK, uh, anti-Chinese racism is spiking in the United States, okay? So my Chinese students, or, you know, as far as white people are concerned, you are Thai, you look Chinese. You are Vietnamese, you still look Chinese, okay? So all of my Asian students, in fact, all of my Asian American students are actually scared to go back to campus because of the spike in um, in anti-Asian racism. Yeah. So what do we say in the face of that? First, we expose the hypocrisy of, you know, insane articles like Chinese bats are causing us. I mean, it, it is impossible to even combat this because the president of the United States is actually getting the CIA to investigate that the, the coronavirus was manufactured by China in a laboratory. So if this guy goes on Twitter and keeps saying these things, can you imagine the kind of you know, a fear and and a racism that it's going to fan in, in his, uh, you know, base. So, so we must counter that and we must counter that um, without, uh, you know, uh, in, in a completely bipartisan way and, and point out that Biden is doing nothing actually to combat um, uh, this kind of anti-China uh, racism. But we must go further. We must say, that there is actually a reason why Biden and Trump are both uh, making anti-China statements. And that's where we should go into a discussion of US imperialism, US hegemony, the world market, the competing powers between China and, and the US and, and Europe and so on, and how that is actually a constant dynamic of capitalism that these states and these politicians are absolutely forced to do this as long as that dynamic of competitive capitals remain on this planet. And the sufferers, of course, will be, you know, uh, on the one hand, uh, people of Asian origin in all of these countries who will face the direct racism. But on the other hand, it will be the working class as a whole which absolutely needs to be internationalist in order to combat this, because if our unions start to say, which they did in the US uh, in the previous eras, that we need to protect American jobs from you know, outsiders or you know, build American jobs as opposed to Chinese workers, then that is not gonna burn out racism from the working class as a whole. In fact, it's gonna consolidate it and weaken. So I think internationalism is the key and uh, to, to understanding this and to uh, pushing it forward. Thank you so much. Um, I've got three questions left, so I think I'm just going to take them all together. Um, so first up is Julia. 
Thank you very much. I try to keep it short. So our group discussed uh, strike and workers' unions, but we were especially interested in the division of labor, specifically the gender division of labor. And um, of course, work in itself is or already contributes to gender inequality for women, um, and that only gets enhanced during lockdown. So um, we came up with the term of the quadruple shift because the first shift for women is um, paid work, which might be happening in home office or um, as a key worker. And then the second shift would be the reproductive home, um, the reproductive work at home, cleaning, cooking, which also still needs to be done. Then uh, the third shift is the emotional labor. Um, she has to make sure that her children don't kill each other or um, that elderly relatives are still okay. Um, that the partner is not get, getting depressed and that we as work, workers are not getting depressed. Um, and then the fourth shift is of course um, political work because capitalism is not gonna dismantle itself. So, um, and that obviously also includes strikes and um, the call for better wages for care workers, which again are predominantly women. So our question is, how can we collectively support the women working the quadruple shift during lockdown? Thank you. Um, and I have Daniela. Yeah. Um, we were uh, wondering if you could maybe tell more about the um, social reproduction theory and how we can learn from, like, what we can learn from the coronavirus um, about social reproduction theory or about the impacts that it have. Like we we discussed, or yeah, we talked about. Um, how um, the interest rates would go up afterwards and those who have the break in a mortgage payments will have to pay more um, like high, higher interest rates afterwards and also like um, child care and losing work um, through the virus like like how does could you maybe elaborate more on the social reproductive so, social reproduction theory and maybe um, link that into how we can formulate some actions to help um, care, care workers, which uh, predominantly are women. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and last but not least, I have Hasrit. If they're still around. You're still on mute, Hazrat. Can you hear me? Hello? Yes, perfect. Um, what I was saying is thank you. Uh, I think my question or, or my group discussion was about union uh, joining into union as well. And one of the questions was about greed. Um, I think it was mentioned, you know, my group was feeling quite depressed about, you know, uh, the discussions and uh, we become a greedy society and how we fight with that one. But I think also very importantly, uh, the question I had uh, was also asked by Giuliella and Daniela, I think, uh, in the last two questions. Uh, it's about women and children. Um, when we are talking about feminism, 
particularly during the pandemic, I think we need to mention about women and children and the impact on them. Um, because I think, um, and also we, I think kind of the increase of domestic violence and abuse going on, home not being safe for everybody. Um, and I was wondering your thoughts on um, on this in regards to, you know, what is the support that we can get for women uh, at this time, uh, women and children, we shouldn't be forgetting children, uh, but also what is the role of the woman, if there is any particular ro role that women can play at this at this fight, let's say, in this activism, in a, any different ways. Thank you. Shall I speak? Yeah. Okay. okay. So um, to start with, uh, you, Hazra, thank you for asking that question. Um, so the short answer is capitalism will do nothing for women. And second, what is women's role to burn the system down? Okay. And the women have been playing that role pretty well, um, you know, in the last five or six years. All of the uh, major strikes and movements have been women-led. Okay, so let's be very clear. From the women's strikes to the strike wave of teachers, which are 80% women, to strikes of nurses. Um, so all of the major battles uh, against capital in recent times have been women-led. So the women have been performing this role pretty well, I would say, in the last. So, but you know, beyond this, this kind of facetious answer. I think there is uh, some very, very um, scary facts that we must address. One is, um, and this was again uh, reading today, the New York Times, which was um, that um, hunger in families uh, ha will in has increased since the pandemic uh, uh, began, right? So they, uh, they're calling it food insecure, which means families are more insecure, food insecure, and food insecurity amongst children in the United States have quadrupled, so four times, okay? So this is the heart of empire, okay? Now, can we imagine what is happening, say, for instance, in Ecuador, where the uh, pandemic hit really badly? Secondly, so this is, this is one, you know, part of the bad news. Uh, the other part of the bad news is that uh, women still perform the vast majority of life-making activities within the home, which means they are responsible for uh, providing food, okay, cooking food, um, and um, um, acquiring clean water for the family. In sub-Saharan Africa, women often have to walk at, um, ten, uh, six to eight miles to get fresh water. So uh, this, once the families, because of capitalist market dynamics, stay hungry, okay, wages fall, unemployment soars, uh, the women within the home will be seen as the one to blame because she's the one who is responsible for producing hot meal. And so if there is no hot meal, surely, so we're also going to see in this period a rise in domestic violence, okay? Because the woman is going to fail, quote unquote, in her duties to provide 
uh, meals for her family to keep her family together. So that's just the one. The other is uh, to say about domestic violence that uh, with a lockdown, women are forced into staying with already abusive partners in that situation. So that, I mean, across the board nationally, there has been an escalation of uh, domestic violence, okay? And the third thing to say about that is once the um, unemployment and um, you know the the the, the firings um, kind of um, take effect fully, uh, people are going to lose their homes, right? They're not going to be able to pay pay their mortgages and lose their homes. Again, uh, this is going to escalate in domestic violence. Uh, women are going to be forced to stay on with abusive partners because they can't afford to leave and you know whatever so this is uh whatever so this is a very very um upsetting uh, this is a very dark situation upsetting is the wrong word it's a very dark situation for women and i must say not just cis women but trans women as well so and and trans people in general right so uh, I mean, can you imagine um, being queer in any form and staying on with a homophobic family simply because you have to, because th there just isn't any money or resources to move right now, right? So <clears throat> this is this is potentially an extremely explosive situation for women, children, and the vulnerable. Um, the 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 second, I guess, on the bad news front is I think what I want to emphasize is that um, women and people of color have been dis will be disproportionately affected in the coming recession okay this is very clear even from mainstream ec economists right they are predicting that women and people of color will be um, uh, disproportionately affected so what that will mean for the gender dynamics is is you know anybody's guess okay except that we know what it means um now um in the uh, you know I'll, I'll come to sort of like you know what i see as resources of hope or whatever but i really loved um uh, julia's um point about the quadruple shift and i want to give you some examples which is um you know a few days ago i read this um interview with a um, chinese doctor okay in actually beijing and she and her male partner, her husband, are both doctors, medical doctors, and they have been fighting, you know, in Beijing, like um, unbelievable hours in order to com combat the, the pandemic. But the female doctor <laughs> said in this interview that they both headed out to the hospital at like whatever, you know, a 9 a.m. every day or 8 a.m. every day. But before that, she had to be up at 4 a.m. to prepare food for her family and put it in the fridge and make it all ready because her 11-year-old would have to, their 11-year-old would have to be home during this time. So she had to cook food for them. So this, you know, on an average in the United States, women do 14 more hours of domestic labor uh, in, in a week compared to the men. So this, is, this expectation is not going to go away 
during uh, during the uh, pandemic as a whole. And I think the burden upon women have increased. It is astonishing the kind of things that women are having to do to balance and, and working from home and working at home because the kind of work we do at home is not unpaid uh, is not paid for obviously but it is still work so women you know i read about this one woman who set up her home office in the bathroom she said because it's the only place i can actually lock the door so i and and you know not let anybody uh, come in so all of that i think we all know and we should uh, brace ourselves for more of this to come. So what is our solution to this, okay? And I'm sorry I don't have easy answers because these are the kind of answers that we have to figure out because in a pandemic, it is difficult to call for a feminist strike, okay? In a pandemic, it is difficult for women workers in the uh, care industry, so for instance, nurses and so on, to completely go on strike. Okay, nurses have been protesting in fantastic ways, but during a pandemic, they can't be striking, uh, or they feel they can't be striking because, you know, uh, it, they, their lives depend on their uh, work. So it's a very difficult situation. However, I don't think it's completely hopeless. So for instance, I think, again, there is a generalized realization and consciousness about this gendered impact of the pandemic, okay? There are lots of articles are being written right now, and uh, some of us hope to write even more, that the virus may be in its microbiological nature democratic, but its effects are deeply gendered, okay? And I think this realization are existing. So what has been my solution I can share with you is to have these kind of um, Zoom meetings with comrades and like-minded feminists all over the world to discuss these issues and in order for us to be prepared, in order to train ourselves and prepare ourselves for, for the future, okay? So teach ourselves all the facts. So that's one sort of kind of, political discussions in, in, these, in this manner. The other, I think, which I am really interested in doing is highlighting the voices of women workers, both paid and unpaid in the home, okay? So what are women going through? Because, you know, Marxism is a, is a um, political tradition that depends on the lived, experience of the working class. The working class is not an abstract thing that you kind of write about. It is the sweat and blood of workers, um, both paid and unpaid, that will determine our political strategies and our theories of the future. So one of the things I've been trying to do is publish the voices of women workers. Um, and when I say workers, I don't just mean waged work, right? So learning from what women are going through uh, throughout the world. But I think once the, um, there are other ways for us to kind of uh, raise the feminist banner. So in our unions, which don't usually talk about uh, gender and feminism, it is our job to raise those issues, to point out to union bureaucrats 
you know, how this pandemic is a crisis also of feminist principles, right? That those are going to be attacked. So those are kind of the various ways, I think, that we want to move forward and constantly asking the question of sort of constantly challenging these you know, false universalist ideas that the, we are all in this together. We're not. We're not all in all this together. And when the time comes, I think it's important for us as feminists, and I include in this, you know, uh, feminist men who, who support the politics of this movement to say that we will not go back to business as usual. Thank you so much for that. Um, that was really insightful and also ideas for going forward as well, which is brilliant. Um, if everybody could just join me in giving a virtual round of applause um, for our speaker tonight. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, just before everybody leaves, a couple of quick um, announcements. Um, next week, we have Kali Okuno on the strategies of municipal socialism. Um, Kali is an organizer and activist and a fantastic speaker with a wealth of experience. So it's not to be missed and please do sign up for next week as well. Um, you can find information about all of our upcoming lectures on the website contra.co.uk. Um, please also join our mailing list, WhatsApp group, etc., Twitter, Facebook to keep up to date what's going on. Um, and we do also have a podcast which you can find on Spotify, Apple, anywhere that you can get podcasts really. Um, and you'll also find recordings of our lectures there as well if you want to go back and look at some of the previous ones in the series. But that is it for me. Thank you very much for joining us again. Thanks and so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay Bye. healthy. Take care. Thank you. Bye.